This morning, I want to begin a sermon series that I believe demands our attention. And I believe it also demands a reaction. I'm going to start a sermon series on the beginning of the good news and the gospel of Mark. Now, for Christians, there should be no greater study than the study of the gospels. And there should be no greater person to focus on than the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he is portrayed in the gospels and today in Mark's gospel in particular. There should be really nothing more interesting to you as a Christian than the life of Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. The Apostle Paul said this at the end of his life in Philippians. He said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as his Lord. Well, his knowledge and our knowledge comes from the same place. It comes from the Holy Spirit as he inspired men to write these words down for our edification and for our equipping. This knowledge that Paul talks about here comes through God's special revelation in Scripture, especially the revelation that we see in the Gospels. Each Gospel account gives us a unique look at God's good news. It does that by beginning with, I think, the greatest news of all to focus on, and that good news is this. God the Son became Man took on flesh to rescue sinners personally. And he came into this world to proclaim that this was God's eternal plan. And he did that personally for us. And we should be amazed by this. Every gospel account begins with this startling revelation. I mean, if you walked up to the typical person and said, Did you know that God became man to live a life we can't live for us, to obey God's commands in our place, and then, in wonders of wonders, died under God's righteous wrath that we deserve for us. And then, not only that, because he was God in human flesh, he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose on the third day to declare that God's justice had been meted out properly on him in our place. And to testify that he is now accepted and in Christ we're now accepted as beloved children of God. Would that not astound people? God became man to rescue us. Each, each gospel account starts this way. And it's, it's shocking. If you, if you think about it, the first time someone read a gospel account, a good news account, God's good news account, they were shocked by what they read. And we're so churched, we're not affected by it, it seems, sometimes today. But these are startling beginnings that we see in each gospel that I think we need to focus on just a little bit this morning. And what we see is the beginning details of God's good news outlined in really four unique ways in the gospel accounts. Look with me real quickly at a few of these, or all of these, actually. Matthew 1, 18. This is just... This is shocking news, shocking good news. One eighteen to 21, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child 
from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her away or put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Is that not shocking? That's a shocking beginning, isn't it? This woman, this virgin, is with child from the Holy Spirit. And this child is Jesus, who will rescue his people from their sins. Now, this is astounding. It's astoundingly good news that was given in Matthew. Look with me at Luke, Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. An angel shows up. Would you not be greatly disturbed by this? An angelic being, an angelic messenger shows up and speaks to her. And the angel said in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace with God or favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the the throne of his father, David, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There will be no end to his kingdom. This is speaking of him as being eternal. And he says this, it says this in verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, that's God, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's astounding. It's a shocking beginning to this gospel account. This good news account is radically shocking here. This Again, this virgin will, will be overshadowed by the Most High and will bear a son, and he will be the Son of God. We see that we see the details of that brought out a little more clearly in John 1. Go there with me. John 1, 1. We're going to know a little more specifically who this Son of God is here in John 1, 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now look down at verse 14. You can know exactly who the word is here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now look with me at Mark chapter one, verse one. Mark writes this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Let me put it this way, the beginning of of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark does not try to explain anything. Mark does not start off with an explanation of his birth, his childhood, anything. He starts off at the beginning here in saying this news from God is about Jesus Christ being the Son of God come in human flesh. Mark begins... I think, with the most basic and essential news of all. He begins by telling us that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning He is co-equal with God the Father. You understand that? He is co-equal with God the Father. So really, I think from the very first line there in Mark's Gospel, we can see something, I think see something very important. God is emphasizing in the very beginning of his letter here to us that he wants all the readers to know exactly who Jesus Christ is. He's making it very clear here. He is not bringing it along slowly. He is just throwing it out there boldly. It's partly that way because it was written at the same time period that Peter wrote 1 Peter. Written under the same conditions. I'll talk about them in a few moments, but... It's written to Roman readers who respected authority and power. So God starts this letter that way, with authority and power. Here's Jesus. Here's the good news. He is God the Son. He makes it clear right up front. And we're going to get into that in a few moments. But what I want to do first is I want to get into specifically why I think it's important for us to know something about Mark the human author of this book, okay? We need to consider who God chose to write this gospel account so that we can better understand the way Mark's gospel is written so we can apply it more accurately. Most of you know that Mark didn't have the greatest beginning. He didn't have the greatest beginning in ministry. And what we find as we study something about Mark, we learn that his life itself reveals the power of this gospel the power and the authority of Christ to transform a failure and make him into a minister of the gospel. This this gospel that we see written here by Mark was written by a man who failed as a minister. And yet, in God's grace and in God's timing, he was used to be an author of Scripture. Now, he wasn't an apostle. He was a close associate of an apostle, of a couple of, of apostles, but one in particular we'll look at in a moment. But what I want to do right now is I want to focus a little bit on on Mark and then come back to the revelation of Christ that we see in the gospel here. First thing you notice when you study Mark, first thing you'll notice if if you're studying it, trying to find who the human author is, you're not going to find a whole lot about Mark in this book itself, okay? What you will find in this book is that he doesn't mention himself by name, all right? And I think that displays something about his life. He had been humbled early on in his walk with Christ. 
And that humility, I think, is, is carried forth as you read this book and see that he doesn't make mention of himself in any way but a negative way. He only talks about a very humbling situation in his life in this gospel account, which I think testifies to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote this book through Mark. Mark didn't write this in his own power. It was the Holy Spirit working through him. But the evidence of that is it removed Mark from the account itself. It didn't take Mark and put him in the forefront. You think about this. If you had failed many times in ministry, and then you give a, you're given an opportunity to do something very public, very radical, very amazing, you sort of have this tendency in your flesh to say, I want to insert my name here to let people know, I have overcome, I have done better, look at me. But you don't see that here. To me, what I see here is the Holy Spirit humbling this man and exalting Christ through his pen. Now, what you see is this in Mark 14. You see a humbling reference to the author here in Mark 14, 51. This is going to feel like a Bible study this morning a little bit, so just kind of be prepared to write some things down if you can't turn there fast enough. In Mark 14, 51, Mark writes this about himself, and notice he leaves his name out of it. It says, And a young man followed him, speaking of Christ, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, that's not what I would put in this if I was writing it. Would you guys mention that? No. This is just showing that the Spirit was working through Mark, humbling him, displaying his humility, even in this little reference to himself of who Mark is and what he had to do with this whole account. We learn more about Mark as we go back into the, the book of Acts. Okay, So go back there with me to Acts 15. In Acts 15, we learn that Mark was, was acquainted with the apostles. He was acquainted with the apostle Paul in particular. And this is important. To be an author of Scripture, to be one who God chose to author Scripture, you had to have a close association with an apostle or be an apostle yourself. And we see that Mark did have a close association with the apostle Paul, although it wasn't the greatest association because of Mark's failure here. Paul had called for a ministry to go forth to do a mission work, and Mark was quick to volunteer but quick to bail out as well. And that's what we see happening here in Acts 15:36 to 39. It says, and after some days, Paul and Paul said to Barnabas, "Let us return and visit the brothers in every city." where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, what we see here in this is a testimony about Mark's weakness. It testifies that Mark was a weak man. He had backed away from his commitment in the past, and Paul didn't feel that he was trustworthy to go with them at this point. The good news here is there was a man who took this weak failure under his arm, and it was Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was the encourager. 
And it was good that, that Mark went with Barnabas and not with Paul. Paul was a little bit lacking on encouragement at this point in his life. But here we see Barnabas take Mark in. We see a whole discipleship process working in this relationship as you see it worked out into the epistles. You see the evidence of that. But the evidence of that really comes, I think, to, to full bear when you come to 2 Timothy 4. You can see that God was working through Barnabas to encourage this weakness that was there in Mark and bring him up more mature than he ever could have been on his own and to restore him to a place where he could be serviceable so he could be useful for the ministry. And we see that in 2 Timothy 4.9. 2 Timothy 4.9. It says this. This is uh, just the context here. Here's, here's Paul's swan song. This is his last will and testament, if you will, before he dies, before he is beheaded for the gospel. He writes these things as he is in a dungeon there in Rome. He writes, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Demalta. Luke alone is with me. Then he says this, Get Mark and bring him with you for... He is very useful to me for ministry. I mean, what a transformation has taken place here, right? I mean, this man who had been a failure, who had backed away from ministry, backed away from his commitment, is now the only one that, that Paul says, I need. I need this man. He is useful for me. I need him. Personally, he needed him. Ministerially, he needed him. What I think is happening here is we're seeing the evidence of the gospel working in and through Mark's life. Mark didn't start off really well, but I believe he ended very well by God's grace. Now, I think all of us can actually relate to Mark, can we not? We've had times in our life where we felt very bold for Christ, and we step forth and say, we're going to do something, and then when we get to really thinking about how hard it's going to be, we say, eh, I think I'll let somebody else do it. And we back away. And yet, for me to, to see that that was also something that happened with Mark, and yet God chose him and the path he was on to conform him more and more to the image of Christ and make him really a key person in the accounts of the gospel coming to us. I think that's amazing. I think that's very hopeful to all of us. Though we failed in the past, there's hope in the future in Christ. That the gospel that we believe will transform our lives as it did in Mark's life. We see that Mark was not just associated with Paul. He was also associated with the Apostle Peter. And I think this relationship actually came about after the relationship with Barnabas. I think Barnabas started him on the right path, discipling him, working with him one-on-one. -on -one. He was encouraging. He was equipping. He was teaching. But then, somewhere in time, Peter and Mark come in contact with one another. And then you begin to see, actually, the radical transformation of Mark's life being actually affected by this apostle's teaching and ministry, so much so that the apostle Peter doesn't call him a disciple, he calls him a son. He calls him a spiritual son. That's what he's referring to in 1 Peter 5.13. It says this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, speaking of a church, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, I find it really encouraging that a failure is mentioned so many times by the apostles. Isn't that encouraging to know? 
that there was something radical that happened to this man, even though he had failed, even though he had fallen short of what he promised he would do. God progressively worked through this man's life, through the gospel itself, and transformed him again from a failure to a gospel writer. And I think that's really important in your understanding of Mark's gospel. Mark is just amazed at the power and the authority of Christ in his own life. And it comes through the power and authority that you hear in this gospel account. His whole life, Mark's whole life, I think, displays that. It displays the gospel that he penned, that gospel that transformed him, a gospel that allowed for another man to come alongside him and disciple him and teach him and be able to point him to others who would do likewise, like Peter. Peter and Barnabas were just tools that God used. And I think it's really important for us to think about that as, as a church. When another brother or sister is failing, struggling, having a hard time, God may be calling you to be the Barnabas who comes alongside him to encourage. And you may be like a Peter who comes along to equip and to take him in like a spiritual son. Because God may be preparing that person, that failure, for great gospel ministry. And he may use you to help him in that process. So I think that's just a little, little insight, a little, little background I think that's important here. But I also think this. The relation between Mark and Peter is very important to Mark's gospel. The background of, of this relationship, I think, is key, matter of fact, to the gospel of Mark. Because Mark's gospel seems to reflect... Peter's influence, Peter's personality, and Peter's preaching. If you know anything about Peter from the gospel itself or from the book of Acts, you can see that almost as a mirror image in the gospel of Mark. And I think that's so because I think the Holy Spirit worked through that relationship as he inspired this book, this gospel, and gave us this account, which I believe could also be called the gospel according to Peter. Because this is really more likely Peter's eyewitness testimony of Jesus' ministry. And that's what we, I think we see here in this gospel account. This is really the gospel of Peter through Mark, okay, the one who was chosen to write it. But I think it testifies to that relationship between Mark and Peter. The gospel of Mark was written, again, around the same time as 1 Peter, and in that same cultural context, it was written under that same persecution that Justin has been teaching us about. It was written at a time that, that people were facing death for believing in Christ. Mark is, is writing, basically, to the persecuted Gentile church in Rome, the ones who were under Nero's reign. So I don't think it's surprising, if you think about the context, I don't think it's surprising to hear something of an immediacy and intensity in Mark's gospel. And that, that intensity and that power and authority that he really comes forth with about Christ, I think would be a blessing to those who are suffering for Christ's sake. You know, if you're under Nero's reign and you're being persecuted for the gospel, and then you, you see the power of the gospel, the, the authority of Christ being displayed through this gospel, you have some hope here that the one who promised to never leave you nor forsake you has all authority over all men, including your persecutors. And, and Mark is just a, a great gospel to see the, the acts of Jesus on display. It's not so much a, a historical account 
of Jesus' life as it is a, an account of his power, his authority, his intensity itself. It's all on display in Mark's gospel. His gospel is a fast-paced book. It's fast-paced. It's short. Everybody likes to read Mark because it's the shortest one, right? Fifteen and a half chapters. Some would say 16. But 15 and a half chapters that I believe are truly inspired by God. And as we see in this book, this gospel account, we see this display of Jesus and his full authority and his majesty, his power is being displayed through his personal care for his people and for those he came to declare God's gospel to. And I think that comforted and encouraged the frightened and the faint-hearted saints there in Rome who needed Christ's power and protection. And one of the ways that I, I think that this, uh, this gospel reflects Peter's influence is one key word that seems to arise out of this gospel. And this one key word reminds us, I think, of, of Peter's intensity. It testifies to the intensity of Peter's personality. And that word is the word immediately. Immediately arises 41 times in this gospel account. 41 times. Now, that, that's a key indicator if you're studying a, a book of the Bible. If you see a word repeated over and over and over and over again, it's a key indicator that that word is extremely important to the context of the book. And let me tell you what we see there just real quickly. I'm going to share with you just some examples here of the word immediately that's displayed in Mark's gospel. What we see in Mark is this. We see that Jesus is coming to do the Father's will immediately. Jesus is immediately baptized to announce his deity and God's blessing. Jesus is immediately tested in the wilderness to accomplish what Adam failed to do in paradise. Jesus is immediately preaching repentance of sin and faith in God after his baptism and temptation. Jesus is immediately calling disciples to respond to his commands with authority. You'll see this over and over and over again until a point in Mark that causes us to take a divine pause from the word immediate. The word immediate continues all the way up until Mark 10. Go there with me. Mark 10, 52. Now, this is very important. That's why I say it's a key word as you study the book of Mark. The immediate, the immediate theme continues, like I said, right up until Mark 10, 52. And look what it says there. This is where it stops. This is where you see a pause in the word immediate in this gospel account. It says, And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Here we notice that once Jesus arrives at his destination, once he arrives at Jerusalem, there is a divine pause in the use of this word. From, from Mark 11 to Mark 14, the word immediately fades away. It fades out. It fades out, I think, for a very precise reason. This is a divine pause. We are to, to be moving fast and furious all the way up to Jerusalem with Jesus. And then once he arrives at Jerusalem, 
We stop because something is about to happen. We stop, and it's actually like you're reading through the book, and you come to this chapter, and the word immediate stops, and it's supposed to make you stop and go, this is what the focus of the book is about. I need to focus on this part. It fades here so that we can focus on why Christ was so immediate throughout the entire gospel. It's here that we pause as Jesus prepares to die for our sins. This is in preparation for crucifixion. He is immediately driven to the cross and he stops and is prepared for the death that he would die in our place. And God wants us to think about this, pause and reflect on this. This is the reason it was written so that we would exalt Jesus, the Son of God, exalting him in what he's done to rescue us, to ransom us from our sins. We don't see the word immediate again until Mark 14. In Mark 14, the word immediate reappears at the horrific betrayal of Judas. That's when we see the word arise again. Look at Mark 14, 42. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, (laughs) immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. When they came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. I can't help but read that text and think, what would I have done? How many times have I given Jesus a Judas kiss after he has converted my soul? And I have betrayed him in my life, in my actions, in my words, in my deeds, by living in sin, by acting in sin against him. I mean, Judas kissed him once. How many times have we kissed him? How many times have we betrayed the Son of God? And yet he died for us. He didn't die for Judas, but he died for the betrayers in this room who believe upon Christ. He died for us. And though we still fall short of his glory like Mark, we fail. Yet he still lovingly disciples and disciplines us and brings us back to a place of usefulness in ministry. It's just, it's just humbling to think about. It's humbling. What we see after Mark 14 is this. Immediately after this betrayal, we see the pinnacle of the gospel. Mark 15 brings us there. Mark 15 brings us to the pinnacle of the gospel, which is the good news about what Christ came to accomplish at the cross. At the cross, Christ, Jesus, Son of God, God the Son, received God's wrath for our sins and immediately accomplished the mission that he came to this earth to do. Church, listen. Mark, Mark's gospel is short, but it is powerful. I want to encourage you to dig deep into it. 
this gospel is packed with Christ-exalting actions. But listen, as we look at those actions, it's also packed with a demand for our reactions to what Christ has done and who Christ is. Mark's gospel tells us, I think as we study it, that the content and the doctrine about Christ and the good news matters, not just to our heads, but to our lives. I believe that this gospel must be responded to the way in which it is written, which is immediately. We must immediately respond to this revelation of Christ, the Son of God, as we study this book. I say that again because of Mark 1.1. Mark begins his gospel with a demand for us to react. He states clearly who Jesus is so that people would be shocked. He starts off his gospel with basically a theological shout. He is saying this Jesus, the Messiah, is fully divine and fully human, Son of God. This is who he is. That, that demands that people respond. If he is God in human flesh, then I have to respond to this in one way or the other. Either in adoration and obedience or in rebellion and sinfulness. I either run from him or run to him. He makes it clear, Jesus is the Son of God. God, the Son in human flesh who came for sinners to ransom them. The Gospel of Mark reveals, I think, that to us very clearly. I want to show you six doctrinal truths about Jesus in Mark that I believe demand our attention, and our reaction. I'm going to go through these rather quickly, so just hang on and listen. Mark 1, 32 to 34 teaches us that the Son of God has authority to command demons. Look what it says. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, that is Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he, that is Jesus, healed many who were sick, with various disease, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now this is a doctrine about Christ that we need to pay attention to. And we need to react to. Only God has this kind of authority. That he can actually cast out a demon. But not only that, he would actually cause the demon to be silent. Showing that he has authority, power and authority over the demon. Now, now that's, that's very important. And we need to think about that for just a minute. Aren't you glad that he has power over his fallen creation? Especially these fallen angels, which is including Lucifer in that mix. They're creatures. He commands them, displaying that he is the authority over them. He has the power as their creator to shut them down, to stop them. And we know that he ultimately did that, don't we? He did that. He came to, to bind our enemy. He came to conquer our enemy. He came in our place to go to a place called the skull. Where he crushed the head of our enemy. You think about this. Eve's offspring shall crush the skull of our enemy. Satan. 
even as he is being bruised on the cross. Now, have you thought about this? The cross is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. It's the fulfillment of that. Think about this. Why does the gospel why do the gospel writers mention the location of Jesus' crucifixion and always make a point of saying, oh, by the way, it's called the skull? Literally, on top of the skull, our Savior died, declaring his victory over our enemy as he is bruised on the cross, yet crushes the power of Satan himself. Is that not amazing? Now, this demands a reaction. This is not just another man dying for men. This is God the Son taking our place, conquering for us what we cannot conquer, which is Satan and demons. He is placing his authority over them. And we see that in these accounts in Mark's gospel. Now, secondly, go with me to Mark 2, verse 3. We see in this that it teaches us that the Son of God has the power to cure the crippled and forgive sins. Now, understand this. Only God has that authority and power. Look what it says. And they came bringing to him, that is Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And then I love Jesus' response. But, but that you may know that the Son of Man has exousia, has authority, inherent authority and right and dominion on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I mean, we've got Jesus here displaying his power to cure, but more importantly, Displaying his ability and his authority to forgive sinners. And we have to react to this. Only God could do this. He knew it was in the hearts of those who doubted. Displaying his deity and that even. We have to respond to this. This is the God who cured us. He came to this planet to live our life for us. And the kind of people he died for and lived for were spiritual cripples. We couldn't carry ourselves to Jesus. You can't come to Jesus on your own. God has to bring you there. God has to change you when you come into his presence. We can't change ourselves. We're spiritual cripples. Yet through his forgiveness, we're now disciples. It means we can follow him. Once we couldn't come to him, now we can follow him because he has done something to us that radically changed us. This is the Jesus we see in Mark. He has power and authority to change the cripple by forgiving their sins. 
Look at Mark 4, 35. It says this. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. Then notice this. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. It was sinking. The boat is sinking. All right? He was in the stern. It says, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and he said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Verse 40 says this, He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this that's in the boat with them? This is the Son of God. Mark, here in this passage, teaches us that the Son of God has authority and control over creation and nature itself. This power, this authority we see here, testifies again to Jesus' deity. No mere human can accomplish this. Jesus didn't come out and beat the waves. He didn't come out and shout at the waves. It says he came out and said, peace, be still. And creation responded to the Creator. How do we respond to this? How do we react? This is the same Jesus. This is the same Jesus that when you're in the midst of a storm, be it physical, be it spiritual, He is the one who can calm your heart. He is the one who can change your condition. He is the one who can carry you through the fiery furnace experience. He is with you. He has control over all things, even the providential things that happen to your life. Illness. Disaster. He is still there. He is still in control. He is still working all things together for our good to conform us more and more into His image. Even the things that seem devastating. He is still sovereign over those. Just take comfort in that. Respond to that. Mark 5, 35. Mark 35 to 42 teaches us that the Son of God has the power to call forth the dead. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her, the dead child, taking her by the hand, He said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking 
for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. He calls forth a dead person. He calls the dead to life. Now, now you can read this as a black and white text, or you can read this thinking about the situation. What if it was your child? What if it was your loved one who's laying there dead? How desperate would you be for Jesus? How desperate would you be for His command to come forth? Now, let me ask you this. Do you have any loved ones that are dead? Spiritually? Do they need Jesus to come to them, to call them to life? Are you believing that this Jesus can do that? If you are, are you declaring the message about this Jesus to them? Is that how you're reacting to this Jesus who calls forth the dead? Everybody in this room that is now a believer, we're all spiritually dead at one point. God called you from your depravity and your grave into life in Christ by Christ's death on the cross in your place. And he can still do that today to anyone who believes and repents of their sins. He is the one who gives life to the spiritually dead. We should respond to that in faith and actually declare this message to those who are spiritually dead with confidence. Mark 10.45 teaches us that the Son of God doesn't just have the power to call forth the dead, He actually was willing to humble Himself to death, even death on a cross, by coming to this earth to rescue sinners like us. 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus willfully substituted His life to rescue us from our sinfulness, our sinful condition by becoming a curse for us on the cross. How do you respond to that? How do you react? The Son of God, God the Son in human flesh came to earth to take your place. Does that change the way you live? Does it change the way you you deal with your sins? Do Do you live in your sins? Without repentance? If you do, I would, I would caution you. I would call you to repent. You may not be a Christian. If, if you can live in your sins without regret and hatred of those sins offending God, I would definitely tell you to look to Christ and believe and turn from those sins today. Christ came so that we could turn. Christ came and ransomed His life for us to buy us back, to bring us into right relationship with God Almighty through God Almighty becoming flesh and taking our place. Church, listen, that, that same Jesus that I just read about in all these passages, the same Jesus who commands demons, who cures the crippled, right, who controls creation, calls forth the dead, the one who came in humility for our sins, This same Jesus doesn't just have power and authority that we read about in the past. He has power and authority in the present and in the future. This same Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And listen, for the believer, he's coming to comfort. He's coming to comfort his people who have been suffering in this world. And he's coming to reign over 
this world in power and glory as well. Though the world doesn't see the Jesus that we see in Scripture, though the world doesn't honor him, one day they will. Every knee will bow. Even the rebel, even the atheist, even the agnostic. They will bow before the creator and savior of sinners. And they will testify to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is kurios. That is Lord, Master, Ruler, Sovereign. Everyone will bow before Him. But aren't you glad now you can bow before Him in praise and adoration? Not because you're under condemnation. Not because He's going to force you to your knees. Now you can bow joyfully because you see this truth that God has revealed to you by His grace. These doctrines flow all through the Gospel of Mark. This was good news to the hearers then. It's good news to us today. Church, these these revelations, though, they absolutely demand our attention and our reaction. You, You can't read. You cannot read the Gospels. You cannot read the Gospels without being transformed by the Spirit of God if you're a believer. If you're transformed by the Spirit of God, you will react to the revelation of Jesus Christ in very particular ways. So I want to ask you a couple things this morning. How do you respond to the good news about Jesus that is revealed in the Gospel of Mark? I want you to examine yourself. I want you to examine your heart, examine your mind. I'm going to give you a lot of questions to think about. Do you bow to the Lordship of Christ in humility this morning? I mean, did you come here honestly to worship the Son of God? Or did you come because this is a tradition or a ritual or expected? Do you bow in humility to Christ? Do you obey the Son of God? Not just obey Him out of duty, but do you do it joyfully? Do, do you obey Christ joyfully? Do, do you repent of your sins continually and thankfully? Because now you can. Christ has exposed how sinful you were and shown you how gracious His love is for you on the cross so that now you can keep on turning from your sins. Keep on turning away and running to Him knowing that there is forgiveness and grace through Christ. Are you repenting of your sins as a response to the Son of God. Mark's gospel calls for us as Christians to immediately respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is our sovereign King. You don't walk up to a king, even a king on this earth, You don't walk up to a king and say, hey, what's up? How are you? You you show reverence and respect and honor. And there's a certain pomp and circumstance involved in going before a king here on earth. The one who saved us deserves far more than what we give to people on earth. Do we honor him with our lives? Do we react to the truth in a way that magnifies Christ? So have have you responded to the Son of God that Mark reveals. Listen, the doctrine of who Christ is, as as it's revealed in Mark, and what Christ accomplished, it truly matters. I want you to understand this. 
there are eternal consequences if you reject the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Hell is real. It is God's just penalty for those who trample underfoot the blood of Christ that we have here in Scripture. It is real. It will come to those who do not believe upon this Jesus and react in obedience and reverence to this Jesus. So let me just ask everyone here, I think, an eternally important question. Have you trusted in Jesus' work, in who he is, as revealed in Scripture? Have you repented of your self-righteous works and your sins? Have you done that? If you know the revelation of Christ, if you've heard the gospel, you are not just obliged to do this. You are commanded this day in the name of Christ to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That is possible. If God is quickening your heart, if God is bringing conviction to your soul, and you see the depth of your depravity and the glory of Christ and His love for sinners, that love that was displayed on the cross, if you see that today and you want that today, today is the day. Turn to Him and believe. Trust in Him. Turn away from trying to be good. He was good for you. He'll make your life good. But your goodness doesn't bring you closer to God. Your religious activity doesn't make you more righteous. And if you're living in sin, that's separating you from fellowship. Repent of those things and turn in faith to Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Put your trust in His life and in God's revelation in Scripture. Cry out to God today that He would give you eyes to see your sins And see the loveliness of Christ, the Lord, the Master, who humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for sinners, for wretched, depraved people like us. Today is the day to do that. Call upon Him in faith. Believe the Gospel. Now, that question is addressed to those who are doubting, who may or may not be believers. But I have another question. Or two, for those who are believers. I have a question about the Lord Jesus. Listen, are you immediately responding to the Son of God's call on your life? It's just as important. If you want to honor Him, you must react to His call on your life. Let me ask you this. Do you love the Jesus that Mark is writing about? If you love Him, you'll keep His commands. If you love him, ask yourself this. Are you obediently and joyfully telling others about him and what he has done to save us? Are you a witness? Are you an active witness? Not just, I'm going to live my life in front of them kind of witness, but a witness who declares truth. Listen, if if, if I saw one of your kids out here in the street right now, And I saw a car coming to them. And I ran out there and I grabbed that child and I was killed while saving your child. You would not hesitate to tell people how great I was for doing that. You would share that testimony with everybody you meet that sees your child living and breathing. You would say, my child lives because Randy died to save my child. Because you would appreciate my sacrifice. 
How can we not do that when it comes to Christ? Who saved us not just in this life, but eternally. He gave His life to bring us into right fellowship with God that could never be severed. Should we not want to declare it obediently and joyfully? Let me ask you some more things to think about. I'm concluding, okay? I, I know it's a lot to take in. Mark's a lot to take in. But as I was thinking through this, I was thinking, these are things that I ask myself. Listen, everything I'm asking you started last week by God asking me these things through his word as I studied this text, okay? I ask myself this. Do I weep for joy about how Christ, our great God, took on flesh to redeem a sinner like me and to reckon his perfect and glorious life to my account? Do I weep about that? Do you guys, do you still weep about that? Do you still cry for joy over what Christ has done to save you? If you haven't cried about that lately, I want to commend you to his word of truth so that you would see afresh the glory of Jesus and be amazed by the grace that we have in Christ. He took on flesh. He redeemed us personally. He reckoned his righteousness, his righteous life to our account. And here's why. So that God could accept us as sons and daughters. He accepts us as sons and daughters because we are wrapped in Christ's blood-soaked robe of righteousness. And listen, here's why I think that he does that. I think he gives us that cloak of righteousness so that this holy God can now embrace us. Not just tolerate us. He embraces us as he would his own son because of what Christ has accomplished. How do you react to that? I hope with repentance, perseverance in the truth. But let me give you some more particulars. If Jesus is your Savior and Lord, ask yourself some more questions here. A lot to think about. If He's your Lord and your Savior, let me ask you this. Does does Jesus, as a believer, does Jesus have first place in your life as the one who conquered your enemy for you, cured your sins, controls the world you live in, calls you to eternal life out of death, came to die in your place on the cross, and is coming again to comfort you and reign eternally on the earth? Does he have first place, this Jesus, in your life? What's your reaction to those revelations? The Jesus that Mark's writing about is not simply the one who saves us from our sins. He makes it clear in the first sentence in the book, this Jesus is the Son of God and the Master of our lives. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is to reign, notice this, He is to reign over all things, not not just simply over all things, but actually in all things in our lives. Jesus is to have the first place as Lord in all things. He is to have first place in our work, does he? He is to have first place in our family. He is to have first place in our church. He is to have first place in our thinking, in our time, in our conversations. He is to have first place in our pleasures. He is to have first place in our choice of entertainment. He is supposed to have first place in our fellowship and in every human relationship. 
Listen, saints. Jesus, again, is, is not just to have first place above everything, but in everything. It's not Jesus here, then family, then church, then life. No, it's Jesus in every sphere of our life is to reign supreme. He is to be first place in our decisions, in our work, in our attitudes, in our labors, in our families, in our church, in the things that we contemplate, we think about, the time we spend should be used for Him. Everything that we do should be done to exalt Christ, make Him first above all things and in all things. Now let me ask you this last question. Do you desire that? I think that as a believer, everyone would say, Amen. We desire that. You desire to honor Christ, right? If you desire to honor Christ, then are you submitting to His commands in every area of your life? Or are you pretending that He is not Lord over here? This is my little quarter, my little section of life. Listen, He is Lord over all, everything. If you're not submitting to Him, in a way that honors Him in those areas of your life, again, I commend you to repent. There is forgiveness. There is grace. I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to pray with me in just a moment that this is the way we will all immediately react as we study through this gospel account for His glorious name. Father God, today I am humbled by what I said what I read, what I studied, and I confess that I fall far short of this. And I pray that you would give me conviction and motivation to react properly to the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and do so in such a way as to to do it for his praise, his glory, not just for my comfort, not just for my soothed conscience, but Lord, my life and the lives of all those who are believers here this day belong to you. We live and breathe and have our being because of you. You are worthy of all of our praise, adoration, and our reaction to these truths. So let us do all that we do, God, for the praise of your name. And Lord, as I pray that, I'm also thinking that if there are those here who are yet to do what is necessary to actually follow you because they cannot do this on their own, God, they are incapable, they are spiritually dead, God, I pray that you would make them aware of their wretched condition. And as you do that, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the glorious truth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the wretched. Lord, we are all a testimony to what you can do with the spiritually dead. And for those here this morning who are yet to believe, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that. That they would see the beauty and the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And I pray this for the sake of his name. Amen.